Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall, altogether shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. 
He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> I think that might be the first time a scripture reading has gotten an applause. But <laughs> it was a long one, and I thought maybe the three of them would keep you interested. Because we have all of our attention so easily diverted, but there's a big chunk of God's word, and so different voices hopefully would help that to sort of sink in. But let's pray together as we approach God's word. Father, we want to say thank you for your word. We want to ask you for understanding. We also want to ask you for the ability to stand under your word and to submit to it. And so would you, by your spirit, speak to our hearts this morning? We thank you for the promise that you're with us, and we, by faith, expect that you intend to speak to us. So, Lord, we want to be receptive. We want to be submissive. We want to be humble to you. And I pray that you would give us the grace that we need in order to do those things. We know without your grace, we are nothing. We could do nothing. We could understand nothing of you except be confused about you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us understanding so that we can obey your word and abide in the promised blessings that you have given to us through your word. So we hope in your word, we stand in it, and we thank you for it. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen. We are spending some time this summer looking at the Psalms, and this morning, Psalm 37 is the one before us. It is an acrostic psalm, and so you will notice these are more, it's not a sustained, unified thought, uh, but there's little chunks of wisdom, and this is a a wisdom psalm. Uh, It is written by David, and what he has done is created a, a stanza for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So he starts with Aleph, and he makes his way all the way to Tav, which is the last letter, Um, And so the first letter of each word, of each line, begins with a a, a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so he makes his way through this. And so the rhyming pattern and rhythm, we don't see in English, but the reason he has done this is because he intends for this psalm to be memorized. So everything that we have before us here is intended to be retained and help us and guide us in life. So that's why the structure stands as as it is, is to aid in memorization. And this, um, I don't know if you caught that verse or not, but David's writing this as an old man. So he's older in his years, so he is able to share wisdom that he has seen. And he's communicating this in a rhythmic way for us to understand it. But there is a backdrop to this psalm. There's a, a, a background that shapes everything that David writes, and it is the problem of the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the godly. And so the question that is unspoken and yet stands behind this psalm is, what should the righteous do when the wicked are winning the day? How should we respond when unrighteous people are ruling the land? That's the question that stands behind everything that we will find this morning. And the aim of this psalm is to encourage godly living in the face of evil. It's to encourage you to be us, believers, those who put faith in the Lord, to be obedient to God despite the fact that wickedness is winning the day. 
So his aim is to encourage good, trustworthy, faithful behavior among the people of God. And this is relevant for us today. Sometimes we, we come to Scripture uh, and we hear things like, well, the Bible's written thousands of years ago. It has nothing to say today. Well, actually it does, especially this psalm to our context because the backdrop here is the struggle of how to be righteous and live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord when you're the minority, when, when you're not in the ruling uh, place or you're not in places of influence. So how should Christians live? Because this is the context in which we find ourselves, right? You look around, there was a day when Christianity was respected, Christians were respected, and then there was the season in which Christians were merely tolerated. But to now, today, you will hear increasingly Christians who hold to a biblical worldview are actually dangerous. Read that newspaper that is thrown around. And so some people think that we are actually dangerous to society for believing what the Bible says. So how, how should you respond in a season like that? How should Christians live in a context, a cultural context like that? That's what David is striving to provide wisdom for. And so he offers, I have sort of categorized, there's a lot here, right? 40 verses. Uh, I'm not going to go through every single verse. Um, but there are groupings of themes that I've tried to pull together under seven headings. So if you were hoping for a three-point sermon, today's not today. It's a seven-point sermon. That's just the way the text is. Um, but let me first establish the problem. I want you to see from the text what is, is in David's mind as he is thinking. And he says it in the first verse. The problem is verse one. Fret not yourselves because of what? Evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So on his mind, dominant thinking. There's evildoers around. There are wrongdoers in the world. Verse 7, right? Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Well, which one who prospers in the way? The one who carries out evil devices, right? So the problem is the prosperity of wicked people. They, they are make, these, these evildoers have evil devices that they're planning and plotting, and we will discover they are succeeding, Look at verse 12, right? The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. So they are carrying out wicked designs with anger and malice behind and aimed at those who are righteous in the land. And so verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend the bows to bring down the poor and the needy and to slay those who are upright. Right, so this is not just, we're not just making plans and devising. We're drawing swords and pulling back the bow in order to shoot at the upright. So you see the, the, the text and the context of what's happening here. Wicked people are not only planning, they are attempting to carry out harm against those who are upright. And verse 32, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. So there's this intentional animosity and intensity between good and evil that we see here. And just in my, my, my inbox this week, uh, popped into uh, my email a crisis pregnancy center in East Northampton. Uh, Thursday morning, the volunteers who arrived for work arrived to a spray-painted picture on the sidewalk which said, you're not safe, right? There's, there's threats uh, towards those who are doing what? Striving to save the lives of unborn children. And that is something that people would threaten? That's, it's astonishing to me, but we probably should not be astonished because almost from the beginning of time, there has been tension between the righteous and the wicked. 
From the day that unrighteous Cain slew his righteous brother Abel, there has been tension against the children of light and the children of darkness. And even Jesus, right, struggled with this as he was preaching to the Jews, his own family, more or less. He said to them, you are trying to kill me, this is in John chapter 8, because you are of your father the devil, right? There are those who are of the kingdom of darkness and there are those who are of the kingdom of light. There's constant tension in this world. And so how are we to live in a world like this? But David also points to not just the presence of evil and the plotting of evildoers and wicked people, but they have attained some level of prominence in the land. And in verse 9, we see this. Uh, Evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And so this is the first of five instances of the word inherit. Shall inherit the land. The righteous will inherit the land. And all of these uses of the word inherit are future oriented. So it seems to be that David is struggling with the present tense situation where the wicked are the ones who are in the place of prominence and he's encouraging the righteous to, to look forward to a day when God will put everything right. So presently, Wicked, wickedness is prominent in the land. Wickedness has the upper hand. In all of these verses, this is what we see. Now, I told you a minute ago, David is writing this as, as an older man. It could be that he is writing this during one of the two seasons in which his sons, Absalom and Adonijah, tried to take the throne from him and temporarily seized control of the land. It could be that that is what is happening in his life. And so he is writing out of this context. So what's the problem? There are wicked people who have the upper hand in the land. And the question is, how should we live during these days? And so I like to ask the text questions when I study the Bible. When you study the Bible, I encourage you, ask questions. And so I, I read this and I say, okay, David, what, what do you want to tell us? What do you want to say to those of us who are struggling to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and here's, here's some advice that David gives. And, and I pray you will sit with this and receive and sit and, and is this for me? What is for me? That's what I'd like for you to ask. What do you, Lord Jesus, want to speak to me today? Because I believe God speaks through his word. Old, ancient words, he speaks in present tense. And so the first thing David says, verse one, first words, fret not. That's where he starts. So we know what the problem is in the background. Wickedness has the upper hand and he says, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. So don't worry is the first thing David says. Don't worry. about it. Don't be envious of wrongdoers for they'll soon fade away and, and, and wither. So don't be consumed with worry is what David is saying. He repeats this two more times. And so three times he says, don't fret. Verse seven, fret not yourselves over the evil one who prospers in his way. And verse eight, fret not yourself for it tends only towards evil. Now, fret is a very interesting word. It is similar to the word anger, and it is often translated as anger. But in verse 8, another word for anger is used, and so here, fretting is used. So I did some digging, and what this word actually means literally is kindling for a fire. It refers to the kind of kindling that sparks a, a flame and a fire. And so this, this fretting, then, is the beginning stages of anger. 
fretting, this anxious worry, this uneasy unsettledness is the beginnings of what leads to anger. And so David is saying, stop worrying. Don't worry. And doesn't worrying often lead to anger? How many of you can remember back to a time when you uh, were under the guidance of your parents in a very specific way, and you were given an hour that you were supposed to arrive home at the end of the night. And I'm sure all of us made it in on time. But you might have a friend who didn't make it home on time, and you, you, maybe you have heard what this went like. When you arrived an hour past the time at which the appointed time you were supposed to be home, you heard something like when you walked in the front door, the lights were off, you didn't think anybody was home, you thought you're going to get away with it and everybody was asleep, right? But you walk in and suddenly the lights burst on in the living room and there's this mother figure standing there. Where in the world have you been? I have been worried sick about you. Worry is the root of anger, right? We this tension, this uneasiness that we can't control, suddenly it overflows into anger. So David is telling us, avoid worrying. Stop fretting. Yes, wickedness is dominating in the land, but don't worry. It what? It leads or tends only towards evil. Nothing good comes of it. And what happens when you worry? When you're worried about the wickedness in the land, if that is the primary focus of your mind, all of your attention is directed to what's wrong in the world, where's the spiritual focus for what is right? Right? It's a subtle way for the devil to get a hold of our minds and, and, and woo you into being so consumed and so ticked off about everything that's wrong in the world that you lose sight of the Savior. I couldn't help but think about Peter when, when he said to Jesus, if that's really you, can you tell me to come walk on the water? And, and Jesus said, come on. So Peter, incredible, got out of the boat. I tried this as a 13-year-old on vacation one year. I, I was convinced I could walk on the water. So I was at the edge of a pool and for like 30 minutes, I get up, stand on the side of the pool, like, I know Jesus, I know. And I splat, you know. Again and again. But Peter kept his eyes on Jesus and he walked on the water. But what happened when he took his eyes off Jesus? When he started looking at the wave and the turmoil and the foam, all the crashing waves, when well, he dropped, right? Our calling in crazy, chaotic seasons is to keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't let the enemy distract your focus, the focus of your soul, to what is wrong in the world. Yes, there's plenty wrong in the world. But here, the, David is saying, don't worry. Don't fret. Don't let your mind be so consumed with all of the stuff in the world that you neglect your focus. And for some of us, I think that means turning off the news or stop reading certain feeds. You need to guard your mind and your heart. So we need to watch carefully over the things that control our mind because worry is like little kindling, right? The little things that get in our mind that suddenly explode into anger. So don't worry. Secondly, David says, trust in God. We see this twice in verse 3 and in verse 5. Trust in the Lord in verse 3 and in verse 5, the end of it. Trust in the Lord and he will act. And how many of you could define trust in the Lord? That's hard for me to define. What does it mean to trust in the Lord? Well, in between verse 3 where he first says trust in the Lord and the end of verse 5, he said four imperatives that I think expresses what trust in the Lord is. And it's one, doing good 
Secondly, befriending faithfulness. Third, delighting in the Lord. And fourth, committing your way to him. So trust in the Lord and do good. Do something good. Do, be obedient, right? This is what he's commending is obedience to the Lord. All of God's commands are good. So to do good is to say trust that it is better to obey the Lord than to disobey him. His commands will carry the means by which you can carry it out. So in the face of evil, don't do evil. Do good. And we have to tell ourselves that and keep that before us in our minds. Secondly, um, we are to um, befriend faithfulness. I love that. Make a friend out of faithfulness. Essentially, faithfulness is staying true to your promises. It's keeping your word. That's what God does. God is faithful in that when he makes a promise, he keeps it. If I'm going to be with you to the end of the age, Jesus will keep that promise. So we too, as our as believers who, who manifest the character of Christ in the world, our character ought to look like his. If our God keeps his word, so should we. And, and Psalm 15 says, who will ascend the hill to the Lord and dwell with him? It's the person who gives his word and keeps it even when it hurts. Let us be a people who keep our promises. It might be that nobody on the planet keeps their word, but the people of God ought to be a people of their word who keep promises and stay faithful. Third, we also see delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Now, I think we know what this means, delight. See as a source of joy. That I think we get, but one thing that occurred to me is also delighting in the Lord is doing what is pleasing to the Lord. To delight in, to please Him, that's delight in Him. For example, if I know that my wife intensely dislikes some might say hates, horror movies, and yet I decide on our date night, I say to my wife, I got some popcorn, I have some water with some Mio flavored, I love Mio flavored waters, um, and guess what movie I have rented? It. Just for you. If you have no idea what it is, think of The Shining, 25 years ago or 40 years ago or whatever. If I rent a horror movie that my wife hates, am I delighting in her? I'm torturing her, right? And so when we delight in the Lord, I think one aspect of what that means is I want to do what pleases him. I want to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates so that my character is in alignment with his so that there's agreement with us. There's communion with us. That's a, a joyful delighting in who the Lord is. So that's the third thing. Fourth thing, if, uh, now all of this is an expression of trust. I'm, I'm trusting in the Lord. And then committing your way to the Lord. Verse five, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act, right? You see that, committing your way to him and then trusting in him. And literally, the translation of, of, of trusting in the, or committing your way to him means rolling your way onto the Lord, rolling it onto him, which in essence is just saying, Lord, it is my life. I'm, this is yours. I, 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 you take it. You lead me. You direct my steps. I'm, this is yours. I, I'm trying to be faithful to you in everything I do. I want to commit my life to you. It's, I'm yours. That's a rolling onto him and a total commitment of a way of life to him. That's trusting him. 
that he will give you what you need in the moment. And look, look at what he says here in verse 5. Commit your way to him, trust in him, and what? He will act. God is activated by trust. That's another way of saying faith, right? He, is, he, he moves for people who put their faith in him, who roll their life and say, my life is dependent upon you. So you, Lord, must guide. And the, the promise is he will act. He will, he will move for you. He will direct your circumstances. And so we, we see that that is trusting in him. That's the second category of wisdom that David says. Trust in him in those particular ways. And then third, the third bit of wisdom that David offers for those of us striving to live faithfully in a wicked world is to avoid anger. Avoid anger. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. So when the wicked are winning the day, an older, wiser David says, refrain from anger. So he knows your tendency, right? That's our tendency. We, we get angry when things don't go the way we want them. And he says, refrain from anger. Just forsake wrath. Turn away from fury. Why? Because that's what wicked people do. Look at verse 12, right? The wicked, they gnash their teeth. And get the soul to death. You've, you've seen that. That's what wicked people do. And David is saying, that's not the way the righteous ought to live. Consider our Savior, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not reach out with threats. And, and when he was offering up his life, he surrendered to people who, who were unworthy of even standing in his presence. And he simply entrusted his soul to God who judges justly. And that is the essence of meekness. Jesus could have destroyed in one second everybody who was opposing him. Remember what he said to Peter? When Peter said, come on, let's fight for the kingdom. And he says, don't you know, dear boy, I could call for 12 legions of angels if I wanted to? But how is God's word to be fulfilled? That's meekness, meekness. And, and this, in verse 11, we see meekness. The meek will inherit the earth. That Jesus quoted in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus is quoting from this psalm, and he's the very example of strength under control, which is what meekness is. It is, it is having the strength, but refusing to exercise it. And so David says, don't give in to anger. Refrain from fury. I think a lot of us, I think guys probably struggle with this a little bit more. I don't know about if there's any guys willing to be honest in the room, but I mean, I, I had to buy a punching bag when I was about 16 and hang it up in the garage because I had to go wail on something somewhere that I wasn't going to destroy my knuckles or people or anything else. So I had a punching bag and I had bloody knuckles a lot. But yet, where does, what do we do with this anger? And James offers a bit of wisdom. He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't. Jesus was the only person who was ever truly justified in anger, and he controlled it. He did not give in to his anger. And we often, we think we're justified in our anger. We have very good reasons for being angry, don't we? Uh, and this is, is this not a constant temptation for you? I mean, the air conditioner went out in our house this week. 
And so I had to call, that made me angry, um, but I had to call a technician. So we call a technician who came rather quickly, which was wonderful. And, and you know, I, I let him in to do his thing. And so I went and sat down and he's marching through the house going here and there. And then afterwards we have a conversation and he tells me what's wrong and then he leaves. And then I, you know, I go back to, to, to check things out and I, I can see everywhere he's been. There's like this trail of, of dirt. And, and I thought of pig pen, right? I mean, everywhere he went, there's this trail of smoke and dust. And downstairs in front of the, the, uh, the heater unit where the, the filter was, there's this little pile of mud. And suddenly, I, you know, I'm like, why can't he wear little booties or take his shoes off with all the other shoes at the front door? It's a house rule. It's obvious. And I get this text message, right? Um, Ah, Mr. Cravens, we are very delighted that you chose to use our company for your service. Your feedback is extremely important to us. So if possible, could you take a little survey just for a short time and fill, you better believe I'm going to fill out a survey. I'll let them know what I think they can prove their service, right? We do that, don't we, all the time. We just, man, we jump in. I didn't do the survey, just for the record. I, the thought crossed my mind, but I didn't. I was more grateful that the guy got the air conditioner fixed. But my point is, we can so easily turn into anger and feel completely justified in it. And David, as a wise old man, says, let it go. Just refrain from anger. Turn away from wrath. It doesn't do anything helpful. That's the third piece of advice. Fourth piece of advice is from verse 7. Wait patiently for the Lord. So when the wicked are winning the day, Christians wait patiently for the, four, for the Lord. He says this three times. Wait patiently three times. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. That's the exact opposite of anxious worry and angry anxiety. Just be still. Just calm down and be still before the Lord. I think if we established a principle and a habit of being still before the Lord, sitting with him, telling him all of our troubles, not filling out surveys, uh, things would go a lot better for our soul. If we rolled our problems onto him, then, then we could let go of this inner sense of anxiety and worry and just wait for the Lord to work it out. Be calm before him. Because we get angry and don't wait when we think God doesn't know what's going on. We, we think he, he doesn't see the problem. He's busy running the universe. He doesn't know what to do. So I need to do something. So I'm going to jump in. I'm not going to wait. I'm going forward. And yet here the Bible says, David says, just wait patiently for the Lord and be still. Right? Does he who made the eye, is he blind? Of course not. The Lord sees everything in your life. So wait patiently. He says it again in verse 9. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And then in verse 37, or verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. So when you're waiting, what are you doing? Right? This is not a completely passive kind of waiting. When you're waiting for the Lord to change your circumstances, what should you do? Keep his way, meaning continue to obey the Lord. And one example, as I was thinking about this, I thought, why would David write this? Why would he say this? What in his life maybe has shaped his, his advice? You remember, he was anointed king at about age 16 or so. And when did he finally come into the kingdom? All right, the, the southern portion of the kingdom at age uh, 30 
But then the northern tribe, the entire nation wasn't brought under his rule until he was 33. So he's waiting 15 years or so in order for him to to fully receive what God has given him. And what did he do in that time period? When Saul was trying to kill him and he and his guys were hiding in a cave and Saul comes in to relieve himself, David's boys are in the back going, kill him. He's, He's right there. Kill him. And David, he thought about it for a minute, and he says, no way. I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. What's he doing? He's keeping God's way while he's waiting for the circumstances to change. And eventually they did. Wait. Don't don't disobey God's commands in trying to make your circumstances work the way you want them. Wait patiently for the Lord. The fifth piece of advice is you don't want to hear this. (laughs) Look at verses 30 and 31. It's watch your mouth. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart and his steps do not slip. When the wicked are winning the day, we probably tend to be tempted to spout off. We want to let them have it. And here we have a sweet, Reminder from a very wise man, let your lips speak only wisdom. And you will speak wisdom if the law of the Lord is in your heart, verse 31. Like we said last week, if you're meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, what is in your heart comes out your mouth. So if you have God's word in your mind and you're focusing on God's word and continuing to abide and meditate on it, then what you say will be wise. And this is difficult because we live in a time in a culture when it is accepted to say some things that 25 years ago was absolutely unthinkable. I mean, every TV show now has filled with, I don't even think we know what the word profanity means anymore. I, I, in, I started to watch a, a show. I didn't even remember the name of it. Don't need to. But I, I thought, I'll just check this out. The first word in that series was the F word. 30 seconds in. And I'm like, oh, good grief. Okay, not watching that. Right? We, we live in a world where profanity is normal. And what does God's word say to us? I think of Paul who says, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for upbuilding. Let there be no filthy or foolish talk or crude joking, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Don't we need this at home, families? We tend to be the least guarded about the things we say with the people who are closest to us. I think it needs to be the other way around. Don't vent and spout off all this filth at home. Don't do it anywhere. But we cannot vent our venom on our people close to us because marriages struggle and suffer enough without having words of sticks and stones flying back and forth at each other. So guard your mouth is David's point. The last, second to the last point, six. The last piece of wisdom that David offers is is woven throughout the entire psalm. And it is the the fact that uh, the wicked have no future. 
So I'm just going to summarize several verses. And if you have your copy of Scripture, you can just point to I'm just going to quickly summarize. One and two, be not envious of wrongdoers. So think, there's no future, right? For what? They fade like grass and wither. Verse 9, evildoers shall be cut off from the land. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Even though you look very carefully for them, you won't find them. Verse 13, the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees their day coming. <laughs> that laughing is, you think you can get away with this? <laughs> you think I don't see? You think that the God of justice will not be just in the end? It's that kind of laughter. It's this laughter of astonishment of those who think you can get away with, with pull the wool over the, the eyes of the God of the universe. It won't happen. Verses 14 and 15. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows, but their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. Seven, 16, 17. The wicked may have an abundance, but it's soon their arms will be broken. Verse 20. The wicked will perish. They vanish like smoke. 20 and 21, the wicked are cursed by God and will be cut off. The saints of the Lord are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked will be cut off. The wicked will uh, prosper for a season, but soon he will pass away. Verses 35 and 36, 37 and 38, transgressors will be altogether destroyed and the future of the wicked is cut off. And you think, if I am, when I got to this point, good grief, I, I give up. Who can, who can even say this? This is terrible, right? Where's the hope, David? That's what I was saying to myself. And then I came across verse 27. Here's the hope from David. Here's the gospel. Here's the, the offer of salvation. Turn away from evil and do good. Verse 27. And you will dwell forever. You repent from all of this and God will receive you. Look to him and you will find eternal life is what he's saying here. So the last point is hope in God. Hope in God through Jesus. Last two verses and then we'll close. 39 to 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Where's your place of refuge? Where do you go in time of trouble? Is it to the Lord? I remembered when I was in middle school, starting in high school, um, I was an exceedingly unimpressive individual as a youngster. <laughs> okay? Um, I was there, but nothing really noteworthy about me. And so that left me kind of feeling on the edges sometimes. So I built a little fort in the woods outside my house. And when I had a hard day at school, you know, when on the seniors on ring day were popping me on the back of the head as I walked by and too small to do anything about it, I, I'd go hide in this little fort, sit and talk to Jesus. Or I would climb a tree the side of my yard. It was about 60 feet up. I would climb up as high up as I could get and I would talk to Jesus. This is a place of refuge. And he says, let the Lord your God be your place of refuge. He says, the Lord. It's in all caps. If you're looking at your, your Bible, that means Yahweh. Yahweh is the place of refuge. And you know what Jesus means? The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. 
So when you go to Yahweh through his only son, Jesus, you find refuge. You find salvation. You find what you need to endure the famine you might be in, the struggle that you might be in, the relational wilderness that you might be in, the difficulty at work. God never promises to keep you from all of that mess. He simply says, I'll walk with you through it. And that's the key. Will you turn to the Lord Jesus and walk with him through whatever time of trouble you find? Because we have a Savior who says to us, come to me. When you're burdened and you're weary, I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. That is a, that's trust. That is obedience. So when the wicked are winning the day, what should the righteous do? Don't worry. Trust in him. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to him. Wait patiently for him. He will act Keep his commands while you're waiting. Refrain from anger and forsake fury. Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And know there is no hope for the wicked, but there is hope for those who will run to Jesus with all of their heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. There is hope in him. There is salvation because he will never turn you away if you go to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.